Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 317. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. Then titled People with Wings. There you go. How about that? Thank you, Adam, putting this together. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. Well, first of all, I'll give you a heads up. Why was that little intro a little bit different, a little bit add-on? Well, we've got an interview with David Bradshaw. David, as you know, did the, I hope you know, did the theme tune to Starship Sova's Volume 2, where it was Tau City Radio, and David's got a Kickstarter on. So I've got an interview with David, and he's promised to get his guitar out. We've also got short fiction on Moonlit Wings by Anir Lee, and we've got another piece of fiction, Ian Creasy's Joining the High Flyers. There you go. That is all coming up in today's Starship Sofa. So before we get into the main part of the show, just a little heads up, and it's quite strange, you'll not know anything about it, but I recorded this show and deleted it. Ages ago, we kind of had them put it together, and it was the exact same, Ian Chrissy and Neil A, and it was all done and dusted, and then I was putting it together, like I say, I recorded it, and then I stitched everything together, and this is probably about, I'm guessing Adam, probably about two months ago, and I just, you know, kind of doing little final checks there, and half the sto- half of one of the stories, I think it was Ian Chrissy's, was missing. And we didn't have it, you know what I mean? And that was like, you know, because once you have kind of finished them and done them, I, that's it, they put the bed. And it was just like, oh, no, I've got to like make up a whole new show and, and do it. And we didn't know how this happened where it was kind of just one. So it's deja vu. I've already done this show once before. So there you go. Just a little insight into the kind of many workings of Starship Sova. 
So we're going to play the first short story, and it is On Moonlit Wings by Anir Lear. Anir Lear lives in Madison, Wisconsin, where she sells real estate under a different name, writes cooks, plays board games, spoils a cat, runs the Strange Horizon podcast, and plots to take over the world. Her work has appeared in places as Lightspeed, Nightmare, Apex, and Daily Science Fiction. You can find her online at Anir Lear. And we've just had one of Anir Lear's... Stories on Starship Sofa. So if you're thinking that bio sounds familiar, because when I read it, I'm sitting, I actually emailed, this is how I am going to clue. I emailed Adam and said, Adam, we've, we've, we've done this show. It's done, dusted. And I even pulled up the show with a near name. And wise old Adam there, Tony, don't worry about it. Just do the show and get on with it. Don't worry. Let me worry about them little details. So there you go. It is narrated by. Our very own Dennis Lane. I'll give you the proper bio for Dennis as it is wrote here. And again, don't forget the whole kind of bios and everything like that links. The fuller, the full 3D version of the, the show notes is now on the site. So do pop over and have a look. Starships of our regulars will know Dennis Lane as the voice of the old movie film talk and his book, The Pouring Dog, featured in first chapters a while back. One thing that might, you might not know is that Dennis is a frustrated actor. His mother took him to auditions as Von Trapchild in a local theatre and he was, in his words, the furthest thing from a little Austrian boy in town. Now he confines his acting to putting on silly voices in front of a microphone. Dennis, I give you a big hug. Dennis, what a star. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... On Moonlit Wings by Anea Lay They called it Careless, thoughtless, they said he flew too high and ignored his father's warnings, laughing even as the sun reached out and shattered his fragile wings, scattering them across the sky and throwing him from its wide blue expanse. Hubris, some said. It wasn't that at all. They'd spent years trapped at the centre of the maze, he and his father. Together, they'd fashioned the frames from the bones of those who wandered in and found themselves lost or gored on the twists and turns, the inscrutable shifting that sprawled out from the centre. They bound the frames together with the heartstrings of the lost and wandering. Father and son, they wove the sails from the lenses of a thousand thousand eyes. The work was tedious and painstaking, the progress interminable. But they had material and time in ample supply. Why do they come to the maze? Icarus asked his father as they finished the first sail. It shimmered faintly, thin and fragile, in the darkness where they worked. Some of them are hurled into it all unwilling, and the others, there are those who cannot help but stumble in. Daedalus hadn't built the maze. That was another lie. He was born of it, formed when the monster at the centre spat upon the effervescing ooze coating the walls. The mixture took millennia to coalesce, and when it did, Daedalus was there. The master of the maze, he understood its twists and foibles, even as he was confined within them. And he, growing lonely, spat upon the ooze and fashioned a son to keep him company. Having a son, he had inspiration. 
and they set to work. If they are solar sails, why do we leave at night? Icarus asked. The eyes of those who lose themselves in the labyrinth cannot bear the direct touch of sunlight. These sails carry the weakness of their prior form, but they are as subtle as they are delicate. Moonlight will suffice. The monster lowed into the night as it watched them set off. If it felt sorrow at their departure, it was impossible to tell. Icarus drew breath as he launched into the air, the wind rushing past his face, the night embracing him, the ground falling away. That was the first edge of tragedy, for in that moment he tasted a freedom unknown in the maze. He could fly, and it was glorious. The stars wheeled by overhead, the gentle touch of the moon pulling him up and pushing him on. And with the slightest twitch of his shoulder, Icarus could accept the tug and go higher, higher, heavenward. Everyone knows, when they first step foot in the maze, what they are doing. Whether their masters have forced them or they walk on their own, they recognize and understand the walls rising above them. And everyone who walks the winding labyrinth paths forgets. Each new knotted spiral of error repeated makes them forget the walls, forget their entrance. It drowns them in the moment, that caesura of memory and remorse. It robs them of even the thought of escape. They stumble on, unknowing towards the monster, waiting at the centre. Soon, the maze that formed them fell from sight, as lost to the father and son as freedom is to the labyrinth walkers. What's that ahead? Icarus asked. Another maze, Daedalus replied. The world is scattered with them. It is the task of the living to walk between them without straying in. Could we stumble into another? We will always escape, Daedalus said, even as he vowed it to himself for his son. Sometimes, it's rare, but it does happen. A labyrinth walker will regain their awareness. Waking from the dream of their endless undirected quest, they see once more the walls and paths around them, and they run, retracing their steps, looking for the exit, screaming to the distant sky and the unfeeling stone of their elaborate prison. These lucid walkers always find a gate. Always they stumble through it, overjoyed at their good fortune. They never realize they've wandered into another maze contained within the first, for by then they've been taken once more into the dream. Dawn crept to the edge of the sky in robes of rose and grey. Daedalus, eager to protect his fragile sail, began his descent. But with the light of dawn came the final edge of his tragedy. For, as the world below lit up, Icarus could see it plain. The world was indeed scattered with mazes, arranged along winding paths that forked and spread and forked again, twisting about a centre where a monster dwelt. Icarus watched as his father descended into one of the wider paths, the walls 
too far to either side to see, but looming all the same. Daedalus called up to his son, begging him to come down before his inevitable crash, promising him freedom. Freedom! Icarus watched the creeping dawn and held his father to that promise. The sail took him high, so very high. The moon's gentle tug was nothing next to the sun's mighty grip. Icarus closed his eyes and spread his arms wide, stretching the sail made from the lenses of deceived eyes, and embraced the sky. The sky, happy for the company, kissed him, sunlight shattering the sail. Icarus and his wings were torn asunder. Daedalus watched as his sun rained down, returned to naught but spit and labyrinth ooze. Drops touched him, and, for a moment, he understood. The rain fell between the walls of a thousand thousand mazes, touching each of the wanderers there, waking them from their dream, showering them with the real taste of exhilarating freedom. As one, all the labyrinth walkers stopped. They looked up to the sky, and, for a moment, knew what they were. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Aeneas. Aeneas, thank you so much. You are a star, thank you. And Dennis, what can I say? A big hug, sir. So, we are going to get into... Now, I mentioned this a couple of times, I think, or maybe once on Facebook, where I get, honestly... Oodles now, you know, like Kickstarters, oodles of oodles of people, you know, totally any chance to just show us. And yeah, some of them I'll, I'll pick up and, and run with and we'll kind of get them on the show, you know what I mean? It's something pips me interest. But, and, and yes, a lot of the times it's science fiction books, which is kind of our bread and butter. But then, you know, I, I, I found out that David Bradshaw, through his good, good Mrs. Bradshaw, Robin Bradshaw, that David was doing a Kickstarter as well. And Honestly, it's been in my heart for since David kind of just, you know, I remember Robin saying just in an email, oh, David's writing you a song, Tony. And, I, you know, oh, oh, that's nice. Well, thank you very much. Came over and, like I say, it was Tau City Radio. It was just, because I mentioned just saying, you know, oh, it'd be lovely if we could get something for, you know, the Starships of Us Volume 2. And, you know, I said, I said David, yeah, just... You know, a little bit kind of dark starish because I love that movie. You know, the John Carpenter film, Dark Star, and I love that song. And I just wanted kind of like a, a kind of country almost feel, you know, space feel to it. And Tau City Radio came back, and I was like, "Oh man, it hits the spot." Do you know what I mean? And for I'm forever grateful. Do you know what I mean to kind of David for doing that, just sitting down and you know. Doing that. And then I, I realised David putting out this kickstart and I thought, nah, we've got to get behind him. You know, I've got to kind of tell friends about this and, you know, and what I'm hoping is, like I say, we can just go well beyond the kind of, the, you know, they're so, they're so nice. Honestly, these people are so nice, Robin and David. They're so humble as well. They put like the, a silly little figure down there, do you know what I mean? Just to kind of reach its goal. And I think we just want so much more than that. And I was dying to get, like you see, I've got David on now. And what you're going to listen to is a, an interview with myself, David, and Robin. 
And the neat thing is as well, there's a couple of little bars of a guitar, chords, I don't know what you want, strums of a guitar. And this is just David, honestly. He must, I reckon sometimes you must drive Robin mad, you know what I mean? Just, just sit playing the guitar, do you know what I mean? It's just like, are you going to come into the table and eat this tea? You know, So even while we're getting ready to do the interview, David's just strumming away and I just hit record and pressed it. So I'm joined now, and I'm honestly, I'm just so pleased as well. It's like having friends around at a party, you know what I mean? I'm joined by David and Robin Bradshaw. Now, I don't know if anyone can, or hopefully people can remember, oodles ago, it was volume two, and I had to actually go back and have a look. Volume two, young Mr. Bradshaw here came up with the idea of writing a song for this volume two that we're putting out, Starships Over Stories. And David, you went and got yourself a Kickstarter going, sir. It's true. It's true. Is it a, is it a nervous um, kind of venture for you, or are you quite are you just quite enjoying it? Well, I'm enjoying it now because uh, <laughs> you're nearly there. <laughs> things have gone very well. That's the putting something on like that online. You really feel like you're putting yourself out there. It's it's, it's one of those things where you're 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 you you feel like a school kid again. All of a sudden, you're thinking like, "Gosh, I hope they really. I hope they come to my party." <laughs> Putting out a sort of publicly putting out a, a, a request for a for a fixed amount of money and a fixed amount of time, and all of a sudden the pressure's on to find out if anybody out there is actually paying attention. So well, when honestly, when I heard about it, and I was like so pleased because I was like, yes, yeah, if I can help in any way, because like I say, you wrote the song for us, Tau City Radio, you know, and if people can even remember back as well, you used to do a fact article on Starship Silver called Tau City Radio, and it was I tell you what was nice to you because I just came with a couple of ideas you know i said i wanted a bit like dark star film i always had this idea of like a dark star film tune and then you just come up with that and to be able to do that to be quite honest i'm like a jack of all trades i haven't got any do you know what i mean but where you can just (laughs) do that i just and it was the song came over just amazing do you know what i mean so i and i don't think i've actually had chance to even thank you you know what i mean so (laughs) david thank you officially (laughs) you're welcome thank you so Tell us about this Kickstarter. Let's get honestly. I, I want this. Everyone who's listening now, I want just come over and just help this. You know what I mean? David and, and Robin, Mrs. Bradshaw. Hello, Robin. Are you there? Yeah. Hello. Yeah. You know these are ours. You know these are part of the, the crew with Starship Sofa. And I just so would love to get this kind of album, you know, away and funded, and you know whatever comes before after that as well. So, David, tell us a little bit about it. Fill everyone in on it. Well, the, uh, the 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 record is called uh, "Songs from the Former County," and uh, we're we're going in the opposite direction from science fiction here. I think we're uh, <laughs> it's a it's a homey little recording, mostly uh, of of, uh, of folk inspired acoustic music that I've been working on over the last couple of years. Former County is my nickname for the area where we live because it used to be Halifax County, and then it suddenly became part of the city of Dartmouth, and then that all suddenly became part of the Halifax regional municipalities so it used to be the county but it's not the county anymore even though we haven't moved uh but it's it's songs that are a lot about about the area and where we live and some of the characters that live in it uh the uh, the kickstarter was was uh, 
And Robin could probably tell you more about that end of things because she's my PR person. She is, she's handling all the all the technical sorts of things. But uh, some some months ago, uh, while we we're doing our, our usual sitting around figuring out uh, finances and mortgages and car payments and grocery bills and all that kind of thing, I come to the realization. I said, I don't think I can afford to finish the CD on time. Uh, I was originally hoping to release it in the fall, and uh, when I started adding up the the, the dollars and cents of how much it was going to cost to print and finish the CD, uh, I said, gosh, I, I think I'm going to have to put it off. I just don't see where I'm going to get the money for it. And uh, of course, at this point, Robin says, well, give me that. Give me that. Yes. <laughs> because I think, I, I, I think, you know, we, we, we sometimes joke about being a starving artist, about the poor starving artist or poor starving musician who just assumes he's got to keep scraping out of his own pocket to pay for anything. And Robin said, don't be so ridiculous. There are ways to do this. Give me your project. Let me help you. And, you know, people want to help. Uh, we're inspired by the, the great Amanda Palmer, who, who uh, talked about that in her beautiful TED Talks about uh, how people do want to connect and they want to help each other and uh, they want to help artists, especially artists they believe in. And look, uh, this, uh, this CD is called Songs from the Former County, and originally we were thinking it was because we're from this little small area in Nova Scotia that's been sort of expanded to become part of a, a larger city. But you know what? It's more than that. It's becoming part of a larger community. And community, as you know, Tony, I mean, you're, you're a master of it. Community is now worldwide. It's where you find your connections. It's where you find your friends. It's where everybody kind of helps each other. So, you know, these songs from the former county are uh, songs from a, uh, a one-guy art, artist and musician in a little town who's uh, finding good friends all around the world. So you know that's what, where it comes. I was going to say, you know, you, you couldn't have put it more you know, any better, because like you said, you know, I'm down here on the northeast coast of England, just basically by myself, little village, put out starships over, and it goes all over, and there was no way on God's green earth we would ever meet in a million years, but, you know, we get together over the kind of the internet, you listen to my show, and we, we chat on, and it's just, like you say, communities now are just totally different, and it's, it's lovely where we can just kind of reach out worldwide, you know, and like I say, it kind of nearly happened with Starship Sofa. You know, I was we're looking at finances and, you know, Mrs. Starship Sofa says that ain't going to happen no more like this, Tony. We need to kind of go down another avenue to support it. And like I say, the good folks at Starship Sofa, you know, backed us and got it all sorted and, you know, made with the show's, you know, comfortable now. It's it's doing great, you know what I mean? And it yeah. wouldn't it wouldn't have gotten like that, you know, and it would have been stressful and it's... And you know what it's like, Robin. It's kind of... Oh. It's just horrible. So... When, like I say, when, you know, you got in touch about this, it was just like, oh, yes, we've just got to try and get that sorted out. Because around the world, there is, you know, that's the beauty. There is so many people there want to help. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. you know, Robin, you mentioned just before, it was lovely. You know, even just like the little backers that are coming in and just dropping, because it's the same amount of time and effort and everything like that, just to come over onto the Kickstarter page and do the little things are just oh. as important. 
They're my favorite. The $5 donations, the $10, the $15, they're amazing. I mean, you know from doing Starship Sofa, you've got your more substantial backers, and they're incredible. They're our heroes. They're our rocks. But we couldn't do it without uh, the smaller donors, uh, you know, the the folks who just want maybe an MP3 copy of the CD or, or, you know, just even uh, here's here's $5 because we think you're a good guy. Uh, That's that's it. It takes it takes all of those supporters to make a make it solid. Well, Robin, tell us about because I'll, I'll, David, I'll just go on to Robin for a second because you can tell who's the, you can tell who's the artist and who's the business. She does <laughs> the talking most of the time, anyway. So, Robin, just tell us a, a couple of the, the pledges that you're going, you know, that you've got on for this now. Uh, do you want the rewards or the people who've supported us? No, the, the rewards. What can people get? Oh my golly! Okay, at at a five dollar level, um, that's that's your good karma. That's a nice little tip in the tip jar. We'll send you a song by MP3 from the CD and a, a nice email from David. At fifteen dollars pledge, you're going to get, uh, and this is Canadian dollars, by the way. Uh, this uh, you get the full CD in electronic copy. You know, MP3s with the cover art and so forth. Um, internationally, uh, $25, you'll get the, the hard copy CD sent to you. Uh, $50 or more, we'll add a little bit of a, a swag package. We'll put in a, a signed CD, a signed uh, poster, and a letter from David. You know, just a little extra something special. Uh, we've got larger um, packages as well. Uh, you can get your name in the liner notes as a supporter, if you, uh, along with the CD and the poster and all that. For a hundred dollars, uh, you can sponsor a song for two hundred and fifty. Uh, <laughs> if you happen to be within our little former county area, uh, you can get a house concert. So you know anybody local listening to Starship Sofa. I'll, could... I'll, I'll drive a little ways. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, I wish that. I just wish we kind of lived a bit closer because that would have been, do you know, uh, what I mean just amazing, just to have like a kind of a night of you know a mixture of David's music and Starship Sofa chat. That would have been fantastic. You know, well, we can talk about technology, Tony. Yes, oh, it, it, it can. <laughs> You're doing it that way, yes, not, not a problem. Skype this bad boy. Uh, you know, we've had, and we've already had, thanks to you, we've had a couple of lovely donors uh, from the, uh, the the Starship Sofa family. Now, what what was our, our friend's name, Tony? Joseph. Uh, Joseph. Joseph. Yes, Joseph, thank you so much. Big thank you. The first, the first thing I hear this morning is Robin wake me up, and uh, I had a bit of a late night, a long weekend, and uh, and Robin wakes me up early this morning and asks if I know this particular name, and I'm half asleep and saying, no, I don't think so, why? <laughs> and then she showed me the donation on the Kickstarter form, so uh, then I said, well, don't do that to me this early in the morning. That's too much of a shock. <laughs> so, Robin, then, like, if I, if, because I'm looking at the, the Kickstarter there now, we've got 22 back, as your, your pledge was 1,000, now you're up to 800 this is Canadian dollars, so to me that's a monopoly bunny, so I haven't got a clue where we are in the Great British Pound. But you're nearly there, so surely you must be doing something a bit more, because you've still got 23 days to go. Well, I, I'll tell you, you inspired me, Tony, when you jumped on board and got all excited. You got me all excited, and I, I'm telling David to be all excited. And, you know, I'm he excited, did. I'm excited. <laughs> I show it in different ways. Yes, well, David shows it in music, and... <laughs> And that's where we go. Uh, so if we can uh, exceed the, first of all, we were conservative when we asked for a goal of $1,000. We didn't want to ask for too much. We're, we're humble Canadians. We apologize first and, uh, and make up later. So 
you know, the expenses of producing a CD, launching it, and promoting it, they're actually more than a 1000 So anything extra that we make above and beyond is going to go right back into the project and going to make a huge difference. Uh, it's certainly going to make, make Santa Claus a lot more happy in our house, um, you know, to, to have those expenses for the project taken care of. No, nothing would make us happier if we had to make an extra large CD cover to put all the thank you liner notes you there know, yes, you know if we've got uh, yes, the, people that we have to thank that we have to print an extra long cd cover that's okay we'd be happy to oh, do that oh yeah so because you're you've popped on board and that start the the sofa knots are already uh, coming on board to help out if we can manage to make fifteen hundred dollars canadian in pledges david's gonna write a new original song and produce it all up for starship sofa oh, <laughs> now going on from there, I mean, some some of the listeners may know I've become chums thanks thanks to Starship Self. I've become good chums with Larry Santoro, Lawrence Santoro, Tales to Terrify. If we can make seventeen hundred and fifty dollars, Tales to Terrify will get their own song too. That's just amazing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, David loves to sing about ghosts. I mean, you know, he's a folk <laughs> singer. He's got to sing about the haunted, haunted this and that, and the, the sinking ships and all that. So, Tales to Terrify is sort of on our radar. If we can, by the good grace of our donors and, and uh, Starship Sofa supporters, if we can make it to $2,000, David will do a third song uh, in tribute and uh, to be property of the District of Wonders. It always, it, you know, I, I don't often cry, but it always makes us <laughs> tearful. Do you know what I mean? Just like, I wish I could just come over there and give you the nicest hug you used to. Do you know what I mean? Because you just, like I say, you're a part of like Starship Sofa's community and they you know, if we can get this going, you know what I mean? It'd be amazing. It would be absolutely lovely. I got to tell you, Starship Sofa was, uh, I discovered it, well, I believe I was on maternity leave. And so my boy is nine years old now. And it uh, meant a lot to never. me to find a community building, be able to talk to you and Karen about my favorite writers. And, and since then, uh, you got me into all kinds of, of work, <laughs> which was fabulous and fun. I was going to say trouble, but... Trouble. <laughs> you've, had, you've had Chip Delaney say hi to me, and I got to talk to Spider Robinson. I get to listen to Amy Sturgis and go to her uh, webinars and uh, get to participate Gosh. in the Captain's Logs project. Unbelievable, Tony. You've, you're, yeah. you've been huge for us. I was, I was sitting in the background when Robin was talking to Spider that, and I, I think I held my breath for the whole thing. <laughs> <You know what>? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> now, David, I don't want to put you on the spot, you know, but we were on about, we want to see your wares. Because you know I mean? I'm saying, I'm building you up there, and you yeah, might not yeah. be able to sing. Do you know what I mean? So, and have you got your guitar there, Squire? Uh, I've got one, yeah. <laughs> I've still got my guitar. I haven't, I haven't had to had to sell it or anything. So, we're, Thank you, <laughs> we're doing we're doing that well. Thank you, daughters. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time. That was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know It's still a little hard for me to hear Please take it slow I don't get out much I barely left the ground 
Tuning in to your transmissions I'm rooting, waiting to be found And I'm building rockets And pointing to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you Signals going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on you and on my way. But you're so far from here, and at best I'm moving slow. So I'm waiting on you, call at home with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I want to talk to you. rocket ships I'd be on my way If I could cast myself on a radio wave I might get to you someday Books for rocket ships I'd need only the will to fly I'm still building word by word I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there by and by I'll get out there out there by and by I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, That's dear, man, honestly, dear. You know what? It, this this thing's going to work, man. It's got to work. You know, <laughs> I, honestly, I get so many Kickstarter, like, you know, people coming over and say, can you do the Kickstarter? Can you do the Kickstarter? And it's always kind of a book this and a book that. And I love doing them. But when it's something like this, you know, David and Robin, it's just, and because I'm, I'm classing you as my own, do you know what I mean? You're part of the, <laughs> you're part of the ship. It's just, it's fantastic. It's lovely. Do you know what I mean? And so everyone who's listening to this now, please pop over. I'll put links on. We'll have links on. I'll kind of keep on dropping a little message. How, Robin, how long we got to go on this? We've got until the turn of the new year. We've got until uh, midnight, New Year's Eve, turning into New Year's Day. And that's uh, Eastern, was it Atlantic Standard Time? Atlantic so, Standard Time. Uh, four, four hours earlier than you, Tony. So yes. watch your clocks. Well, honestly, David, what can I say? That was just tremendous, to be quite honest. And you know what, David, as well? It's funny, because when I listen to it, and I listen to it quite often, that song, I'm all listening to it on the YouTube, you know, the video we've got. And I think the video, though, is only half of the song. So, you know, for, since we've done this, your song, you know, I know about your song, I've never really listened probably twice to the full version. You know, I just go on YouTube and listen to it like that. So it was actually quite nice to hear the full bloody thing. 
<laughs> oh, that's great. I didn't have all the copyright infringement material that we had to cut out or anything. But. <laughs> <laughs> Special effects. Sound effects board from yes, my I, I remember because that, actually that was Robin, wasn't she? She was like, yes, cut it because I was keen as anything for you to put keep all them effects in and you put <laughs> them in. And, but, you know, a sensible, Mrs. Sensible, like, no, 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 we are on God's green earth. Get them out. That's it. Business and manager, D, she takes care of everything. And Dee you know? was fantastic. He 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 made the miracles happen. Dee did. Oh no, yes, but um, like I say, do you mean to, to do that song there? And now you know you've got this CD out. Let or hopefully the CD is coming out. Do you know what I mean? Be, um, it'd be very nice to get this. It would be amazing to get this funded. So everyone, do the right thing. Come over. It's yes, it's Christmas cheer there. Do the right thing. Come over to the Kickstarter and get this David Bradshaw's. What's it called again, David? The album. Songs from former county. There you go. Songs from county. That would be lovely. Well, listen, you two have a fantastic Christmas and a, an amazing New Year. Hopefully, it will be an amazing New Year if we get this back and get it funded. But you know what I mean. Like you see, it's it's been lovely to just have a chat with you and you know chew chew the cud over Starship Sova and David's music. Robin, David, thank you so much for coming on thank Starship you. Sova. Thank you, thank Tony. There you go. What can I say? The nicest people. The nicest people in science fiction. And I just, honestly, man, we've just got to make this work for them. You know what I mean? Like I say, there's loads of Kickstarters out there, and we've all got our kind of special ones. This is my special one. This is the one I would just love to get. You know, the, the pair of them are lovely people. They did just out of their own back. David just kind of sat down and wrote that Tau City radio song. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, they're so humble. They've got the kind of least award, you know, the kind of just to make something, just to get, you know, a little bit of money to kind of get this project off, you know. And if you're listening to that interview, what I really like was, you know, David kind of realised at the very, at the onset, you know, he wouldn't, you know, he might not have enough money and, you know, it, it might have to be kind of put on hold. That wouldn't happen with Starship's over. Do you know what I mean? I would kind of sneak it out of the account. You know what I mean? It's just like out of some fund. You know what I mean? Read your pocket money this week. Ah. Oh, mum's forgot it. Mum's forgot it. I'll sort it out next week. So, and just, like I say, David just realised it wasn't going to come off. And just prepared to kind of, you know, put things on a hold. And that's what, that's the kind of, the humbleness that, you know what I mean, that's such a word that I just like, you know what I mean? And like I say, if we can get past that and get them stretch goals, do you know what I mean, to do a new song for Starships over, do you know what I mean? And then one for Larry with Tales to Terrify, and then one for the District of Wonders. Do you know what I mean? And even their main stretch goal is, honestly, when you see some of these kind of anthologies getting done, is peanuts. It's peanuts. You know what I mean? So please pop over there. The links are on the site. It would just make my year if we could get this kind of, you know, a good little fun for them. For the Bradshaws, you know, part of the crew, Starship's over. Right then, let's get into the next main fiction, and it is Joining the High Flyers by Ian Creasy. Ian Creasy lives in Yorkshire, England. He has published about 50 short stories in various magazines and anthologies, and in 2011, he published his debut collection, Maps of the Edge. I'll put a link on to Ian's site. Please pop up there. We played a couple of stories by Ian, I think, as well, in the past. You notice now I'm starting to see, I think... <laughs> It's just, I haven't, honestly, my memory's shocking. 
and never been good. So I'm, I can never chooses or worries us. But do you know what I mean? It's just things fade off, and I don't know if I'm batting or bowling sometimes. So there you go. I'm sure we have played in the past. I'll give you a heads up about Logan, who is the narrator for this story. Logan has a degree in technical theatre from California State University and has worked in many theatres, large and small, professional and amateur. He's also worked for Apple computers, sold hot tubs and comic books and prepared court documents. He has taught sword fighting for stage and ran lights for a local band until they broke up. He currently works tangentially for a legal system, watches a lot of science fiction television, listens to a lot of podcasts and reads a lot of science fiction novels and comic books. He hopes to make a bit of money from his voice acting and narration someday. Logan currently lives in Northern California with Grendel, a huge black beast whose primary occupations are sleeping, stalking the fish in the aquarium and Morgana, a small fluffy queen. <laughs> Sorry, that's just me. Small fluffy queen. <laughs> Her rules. Oh man, the littlest things. Must be the air today, it's a bit thin. Small fluffy queen. <laughs> oh, come on, man. Who rules the domain with an iron paw? The fish remain unimpressed. There you go, I got through that just. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Joining the High Flyers by Ian Creasy. Delroy felt small and fragile in his new body, especially down here on the ground in the midst of a crush of reporters. He'd given plenty of press conferences in the past, but in those days he'd always been the most physically imposing presence in the room. Now he was smaller than the podium on which he stood to reach everyone else's eye level. Height, or lack of it, was an indicator of status, hardwired into humans through aeons of evolution. The journalists knew that Delroy was the same person whom they'd admired as an Olympic sprinter, but their body language no longer deferred to an alpha male. Show us your wings, they cried in the patronizing tone of grandparents talking to a child. Delroy smiled with a fierce, exultant grin. This was the challenge, to gain respect, to start afresh and surpass everything he'd achieved in his old body. He spread his expansive new wings and flapped them once. The closest reporters flinched from the whip of his scarlet feathers past their faces. A buzz of excitement filled the hall as Delroy posed, slowly turning to offer all the photographers a good view. He caught Yara's eye, and she gave him a thumbs up. The crowd was even bigger than they'd hoped. As Delroy's mentor and sponsor, Yara Rodriguez would share in any glory that he attained. Yara was as small as Delroy because she was also a flyer. Her son already towered over her, even at nine years old, and he hadn't been re-sculpted into the compact shape necessary for human flight. He looked bored and resentful, the only person in the crowd unimpressed by the sight of wings. Although the reporters kept calling out questions, unfolding his wings had made Delroy impatient to fly, and really no one had come to hear him utter a few platitudes about looking forward to fresh challenges. They simply wanted to see his new body, watch him begin his first exploit. So he obliged them, pausing only to cross himself and offer up a silent prayer. That was the single item he'd retained from his old pre-race routine. Everything else had changed. Achieving liftoff from a standing start was notoriously difficult, but the height of the podium afforded just enough scope. 
Delroy leapt forward, scything his wings through the air, and nearly fell into the throng. He was forced to tread on a journalist's shoulder to assist his launch. That would make a headline. The Enhanced Trampling the Standard Humans Underfoot. No help for it now, he circled the crowd, indulging in a little showboating, wing dips and pirouettes, but nothing too fancy, as he was only a novice and it would be embarrassing to plummet before he'd even ascended. Delroy drew aside a curtain to reveal a square slab hanging from the ceiling of the hall. He unhooked the slab, lurched under its weight, then recovered himself and flourished it for the cameras. One side was decorated with a yellow disc, representing his Olympic gold medal. The other side depicted a clock face, alluding to Delroy's world record time for the 100-meter sprint. He didn't want to carry the heavy slab any longer than he had to, so after one full circuit of the hall, he flew out of the highest window. As soon as he emerged into the open air, he started climbing. The sun's glare made him sweat, but temperatures would diminish rapidly as he rose. In the upper reaches, the problem was keeping warm, rather than keeping cool. He wore the white woolen costume of a novice, but his main protection came from a redesigned system for circulation of the blood. Flyers needed more than just wings. The enhancement process included all sorts of complicated adjustments for survival in the air. Cheers and catcalls came from below. His fans inside the hall were applauding as they watched through the windows. Outside stood the natural life picketers, protesting his decision to abandon the ancestral human form and accept enhancement. They jeered and made rude gestures. Delroy gave them an indulgent smile, which they couldn't see because he was too high and none of them had an enhanced eyesight. His hands ached from holding the slab. More importantly, it was impairing his balance, so he hooked it onto the harness that he wore. The slab dangled below him, better centered. Now he could concentrate on assessing the air currents, sniffing out any hint of a thermal that might aid his climb. He had a long way to go. "'How are you feeling?' said Yara. Delroy hadn't heard Yara's approach. She was such an experienced flyer that her wings made no sound. But he should have seen her. Yara had often lectured him on the importance of maintaining full awareness of everything around him. Some flyers' enhancement included ocular relocation. With pigeon-like eyes to each side of their head, they could view their complete surroundings. Delroy had declined this adjustment, partly because Yara's clade tended not to utilize it, but mostly from a desire to emulate predators rather than prey. Better a hawk's vision than a dove's, surely. Yet this was the fascination of clade rivalry, that such decisions could be tested in combat. If Delroy didn't learn to pay better attention, he would be outcompeted by the pigeons. I'm fine so far, Delroy turned a glance to Yara, who had matched his height despite launching sometime after him. She wasn't burned by a heavy slab, but she did have a canvas sack. What's in the bag? Prayers, she replied curtly. Her tone rebuffed any further inquiry, though he could glance at the circumstances. Earning money as a prayer courier was low-status work, but Yara's sons didn't have his wings yet, and even the most basic flight enhancement was expensive. Ascending in slow circles, they passed the laser grid that shielded groundlings from any falling debris. Silence surrounded them. The air was vast and empty. Below, the ground shrank away, beginning to look less like a landscape and more like a map. Delroy could already glimpse the ocean beyond the sprawling almond groves of Southern California. When his wing muscles grew tired, he rested by catching a breeze and gliding for a while. Yara followed his lead, no longer guiding and advising him as she had in his training sessions. This was Delroy's mission, the end of his apprenticeship. 
If he successfully carried his stone to the Picaroon's cloud castle, he would become a full member of the clade. It would be easier if the slab wasn't so heavy, but the larger the stone, the greater their prestige, if he succeeded. It had been a hard decision choosing the weight. A smaller stone would make the journey safer at the expense of fate acclaim from his comrades and contemptuous disdain from rivals. On the other hand, if he selected an overweighty stone and failed to complete the ascent, he would be derided for hubris. He could try again, but his future clade mates would distrust his judgment. Delroy relished the complexity of the calculation. This was why he'd wanted to join the aerial clades. The prospect of difficult challenges that exercised his brain. In his old life as a sprinter, the task simply involved running very fast in a straight line. He was also attracted to endeavors that took longer than a few seconds to complete. This ascent would require several hours, and it was only the prelude to joining the long-running campaign in the sky, where competition for prestige was brutal and eternal. Eagerness filled him, and he began climbing once more. The air grew chill. Wisps of cloud brushed past him, and small dewdrops condensed on his skin. He wiped them onto his fingers and sucked them down, grateful for the extra liquid. To save weight, he'd only brought a small water bottle. Delroy saw a few other flyers during his ascent, just some people training a troop of flying dogs. He watched the poodles and terriers as they struggled to adapt to the air. They kept flailing their legs, no matter how little it availed them in the sky. There was an ongoing debate on how best to create aerial pets, whether to graft wings onto an affectionate animal such as a dog, or graft affection onto a winged animal such as an eagle. The Picaroon's guru, Augustine, had not yet ruled on the issue. At last Delroy's locator pinged, telling him that he was approaching the castle. He was grateful to hear it. His wings ached from the weight he carried, and the harness dug painfully into his skin. "'You're doing great,' said Yara. "'We need to be careful, though. It looks like there's a bit of a skirmish going on. It shouldn't affect us, but if you see any fighting, try not to get in the way.' "'Why won't it affect us?' asked Delroy, and regretted it. He lacked spare breath to speak. "'Because you're a novice, you're not officially a Picaroon yet. There'd be no prestige in attacking you. It'd be like mugging a baby for sweets. And it'd be bad form to attack me, as that would leave you without a guardian.' The aerial code stipulated that novices must always be shepherded. Delroy was a little stung to be deemed so insignificant that he couldn't yet be attacked or even left unaccompanied, but it only redoubled his desire to reach the castle and finish his apprenticeship. He gasped for breath, his wings burning with fatigue. The slab felt like a millstone weighing him down. He looked up and saw the castle amid the clouds. Even though he was so tired that he could hardly think, he couldn't help but be astonished at the sight of the Picaroon's aerial palace. It was an enormous, sprawling agglomeration glittering in the evening sun. But the most astounding aspect was its shape, the antithesis of a symmetrical planned structure. Instead, it resembled an organism with hundreds of different cancers, all constantly growing and producing their own bizarre pathologies. Some sections of the fortress looked deliberately old-fashioned, like earth castles with crenellations and arrow-slit windows. Others looked futuristic and otherworldly, inspired by films or video games or the mad visions of artists who enhanced their brains to supercharge their creativity. Parts of the palace bulged out in all directions, sprouting towers and cellars some still under construction, together with terraced gardens extending far away from the walls. 
A few stretches were hollow and dilapidated, patched up with utilitarian repair work, overshadowed by flashier neighbors. The whole edifice was so impossibly overblown that it transcended vulgarity and all notions of conventional taste, demanding simply to be seen as what it was, the collective home and soul of the entire Picaroon clade. Delroy's heart swelled with pride at the thought of making his own contribution. Soon he would bring his first stone to the castle, where it would help make the Picaroon's home bigger and better than any rival abode. All of the castle stones had been brought by its inhabitants, either laboriously ferried up from the ground or valiantly acquired through conquest. The stone that dangled from Delroy's harness felt a little lighter, as adrenaline and euphoria powered him towards his destination. Now he had to find the correct entrance. Although reaching the castle would satisfy the graduation requirements, he wanted to deliver his stone to the appropriate spot. Just as the aerial portion of humanity was divided into myriad competing clades, so the Picaroons themselves were divided into rival factions and families. The castle's architecture recorded the outcomes, as each subclade sought to outdo its peers in building ever more elaborate and exotic annexes in which to roost. Prestige is fractal, Augustine had proclaimed. There was competition at all levels, with the results on display for everyone to admire. My home is to your left, said Yara. Not an explicit order, but a reminder of Delroy's duty. As she had mentored him throughout the arduous process of resculpting his body and learning to fly, Delroy had a moral obligation to join Yara's clan, although nothing prevented him from switching later if he so desired. Just as the Picaroons comprised numerous factions, so the factions themselves consisted of competing individuals all striving for their own advancement. And in some cases, those individuals might even have multiple enhanced minds competing for supremacy within the same body. As Delroy approached the castle, he saw that it was besieged by a swarm of raiders. Whenever the attackers managed to dart past the defending Picaroons, they hacked away at the walls and stole stones. They targeted the architectural jewels, the most dazzling ornaments, but they took whatever they could grab. The battle was a confused affair, a vast array of individual duels and skirmishes. Combat was strictly hand-to-hand, -hand, or claw-to-claw. -claw. The attackers favored a reptilian body shape, with fierce claws and fangs. They were clad in various shades of blue, denoting them as wyverns, in contrast to the green preferred by the Picaroons. Delroy, in the white garb of a novice, gazed with keen interest on the conflict, trying to discern tactics. This was his future. He imagined himself among the defenders, repelling the onslaught. One day he might be an attacker storming someone else's castle. "'Never mind reaching our roost,' said Yara. "'Just get inside!' In the maelstrom of battle, it wasn't easy finding any open portals among the embellishments encrusted on the castle walls. Delroy flew onward, searching for an entrance, and spotted an expanse of dull gray stone with narrow access slits. The closer he got to the wall, the closer he got to the fighting. On his right, a small knot of wyverns peeled off from their sally, rebuffed by the fierce defenders of a golden spire fringed with delicate fretwork. The raiders their serpentine faces full of disappointed greed, were gliding back to the open sky when they saw Delroy and Yara. They swiftly adjusted their course. One man flew toward Delroy, passing just underneath him. The other three converged on Yara. In an instant, Delroy felt lighter. The slab was gone. The wyvern had stolen it, snipping it loose with a deft slash of knife or claw. 
It happened so quickly that by the time Delroy noticed the loss, the raider had already flown past him and away, clutching his booty. Yara, much more experienced in combat, offered greater resistance. But three attackers surrounded her, and she was tired after the long ascent. Even when Delroy lent his inexpert aid, swiping random blows at the blue-clad marauders, she couldn't fend them off. All too soon, they made away with her canvas sack. "'You're wounded!' exclaimed Delroy. Yara's wings were stiffly extended. She could barely manage to stay aloft. Two of her fellow picaroons flew across the golden spire, offering their concern and assistance. Delroy noticed they'd avoided arriving in time to help with the fight. Protecting the spire was no doubt a higher priority than defending Delroy's slab or Yara's cargo of prayers. "'Take her inside,' he said, not caring that as a novice he had no right to give orders. After all, as a novice he had no right to be attacked, but it had happened anyway. As soon as he saw Yara disappear safely into the castle, Delroy launched himself in pursuit of the raiders. It was probably a futile chase, but he had to attempt it. Rage burned inside him. His pride demanded retaliation for the robbery. Very soon he was forced to make a choice. The men had separated. Which of them should he follow? He wanted to regain his stone, but that particular thief had a longer head start. Pragmatically, Delroy resigned himself to pursuing the other three. It was a token effort he knew. He was too tired, and he lagged further and further behind them. Still, if he could at least track them long enough to spot their destination, that would be something. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. To surprise, the wyverns slackened their pace. Perhaps feeling themselves at a safe distance away from the castle, they turned their attention to Yara's bag, impatient to open it and examine their booty. Delroy heard faint exclamations of disappointment and contempt. One of the thieves upended the bag. A sheaf of papers came tumbling out, followed by a water bottle, a banana, and a bar of chocolate. The heavier items fell swiftly. Caught by the gusting breeze, the papers scattered more slowly, fluttering away like giant snowflakes. The raiders laughed. 
Delroy had believed he was already angry, but now he realized that he'd previously only set foot upon the threshold of wrath. He banked in midair and dived, swooping as fast as an osprey plucking a fish from a lake. He fished for prayers, snatching up as many of the fluttering papers as he could gather up. It was strenuous work since he had to maneuver over a wider and wider area as the falling prayers gradually dispersed across the sky. But he no longer felt tired. Delroy was suffused with a transcendent rage that buoyed him up and gave him the strength of a lion, a python, a dragon. Every time he breathed out, he half expected the air to combust with the sheer heat of his fury. As he collected the last few papers that he had any chance of reaching, he felt a spattering of droplets upon his neck and outstretched wings. At first he thought it was rain, until he realized the liquid was too warm and pungent. Delroy looked up. The three raiders were hovering above him, grinning widely, their pants lowered to expose their cocks. They were pissing on him. With a flourish, each wyvern in turn shook the last few drops from his penis, then waved mockingly and flew away. Below, far beyond recovery, the remaining white pages slipped down into the void, forlorn prayers destined never to reach heaven. I'm sorry, said Yara. I let you down. I shouldn't have assumed you'd be safe as a novice. She sighed. Her hands fretfully grasped the top of the bedsheet and crumpled the fabric into knots. Before he became enhanced, Delroy had heard rumors that the aerial clades all slept hanging upside down from ceilings like bats. But it wasn't true. Flyers used beds like everyone else. In the castle's medieval center, where Yara had stayed overnight, the beds were small and crammed together, with curtains for meager privacy. No one came here to be impressed by flamboyant decor, so there wasn't any. "'You're sorry!' exclaimed Delroy. "'They're the ones who should be sorry. They broke the rules, not you!' "'Well, that's just it. There aren't any black-and-white rules. Written in a big database somewhere, it's more like a social code. Where people understand what's good manners and what's frightfully rude. Attacking a novice is like going to a dinner party and wiping your nose on the tablecloth. It's vulgar, but there's nothing to stop anyone from doing it if they'll stoop that low.' After publicly promoting you as our celebrity recruit, I should have guessed that someone might target you just for the notoriety. No black and white, huh? said Delroy. You told me that before, but I didn't realize the gray would be so savage. Delroy, busy learning the mechanics of how to fly, hadn't yet absorbed all the social intricacies of life in the air. The milieu's complexity was one of the major differences between standards and the enhanced, and indeed one of the reasons why he'd made the switch. Delroy and Yara had both originally been sprinters, competing in the rigidly controlled world of standard athletics, where enormous rule books forbade body resculpting, gene therapy, performance-boosting drugs, and all other techniques that might give anyone undue advantage. Runners had to be fairly matched or the race was pointless. In contrast, no two enhanced body types were the same, as everyone could change and improve their bodies whenever they liked. This meant the enhanced didn't have strictly defined sports where equal competitors played to an agreed rulebook. But even without sports, people still wanted to win, and wanted an audience for their victories. Competition simply manifested in other ways. With no finishing line or full-time whistle, it occupied people's whole lives. 
This was what Delroy had wanted, and now he'd tasted its first fruits. Although shocked at the ruthless violation of etiquette, he was fascinated by the vast realms of possibility that it implied. Notoriety is the cheapest version of fame, said Yara. Those wyverns who pissed on you, sure they're enjoying their fifteen minutes, but they'll be forgotten soon enough. The battle for prestige is the story of our times, and an ongoing narrative needs a constant supply of bad guys. There's always someone willing to step into that role. Lured by the spotlight, it never lasts. She shook her head, muttered her next sentence almost to herself. Plenty of girls will fall for a bad boy, but eventually they learn better. Then she raised her voice, sat up on her bed, and pointed at Delroy. Never mind them. What matters is how you respond. Sure, said Delroy, but I'm still a novice. Yara interrupted him. Only if you want to be. There are no rules, remember? Only customs. Yes, the tradition is that a novice completes his apprenticeship when he brings a stone to the castle. But you were only a minute away from doing that, and everyone knows you'd have succeeded if you weren't attacked. If you want to claim the Picaroon green, you could wear it and dare anyone to complain. That has the virtue of audacity. On the other hand, you might think there's more benefit in staying a novice, playing up the pathos of being robbed. Right now, you're a victim. That's a powerful position in the short term. It gives you sympathy value. Yet you can't stay a victim forever. I don't intend to, said Delroy. You could go back to the ground for another slab, Yara said. But I think you should join a raiding party and capture your original stone back from the wyverns. As Delroy still wore a novice's colors, Yara was giving him a mentor's advice. But he already had his own plans. Actually, I want to take the prayers up, he said. That's why I collected them. So I could make sure they reached their destination. Oh, said Yara in a startled tone. I thought you collected them for me. After all, I'm their courier. They're my responsibility. They're our responsibility. We're all pickeroons here. And we can't let our enemies delay our prayers, can we? I did originally collect them for you, but I hear you've been confined to quarters. No flying until your wings heal. So why don't I take them up instead? Yara paused, then said reluctantly, There's no reason you couldn't, I suppose. It's just that I had one extra prayer to deliver a personal one. Still, I might as well give it to you to pass on. Maybe you'll have better luck with it than I ever had. In the aftermath of the raid, the sky was quiet. As he left the castle, Delroy saw a few picaroons patching up gaps in the walls. No retaliatory sallies had yet been launched. News of the shameful assault upon a novice flyer was still reverberating around the world causing some of the wyverns and their allies to question whether they wanted to be on the same side as the perpetrators. If the Pickerons attacked now, the wyverns' coalition would hold together in self-defense, whereas a judicious pause might see the wyverns suffer defections from their more high-minded flyers, worried about the collective taint to their prestige. Such, at least, was the excuse given to Delroy by one of the Pickerons' chief strategists, who'd clearly expected that Delroy would demand a swift attack to recover the stolen slab. The strategist, visibly relieved, had nodded her approval when Delroy explained that he intended to convey the salvage prayers upon their way. Good idea, she said. It gives us the moral high ground if we're seen to prioritize the prayers over instant retaliation. When you reach heaven, you can request a judgment on the wyverns. If the wyverns are condemned, we'll be able to call a crusade against them. I'll include that with the other prayers, Delroy had replied. 
Then he'd left the castle quickly before anyone could add anything else to the ever-growing list. The sheaf of prayers weighed less than the slab he'd previously carried, but its burden was not negligible. He had a long way to climb, and the air would be a lot thinner in heaven. This ascent might prove even more taxing than his previous one. As he rose above the castle and gazed on the rooftop gardens, Delroy realized this was the highest he'd ever flown. The thought sent a thrill through him. Although he still wore the white of a novice, he felt he'd passed into a new realm. Retaining the white was more a tactical decision than a genuine signifier of apprenticeship. It left him scope to ostentatiously claim the green after performing a prestige-accruing feat. Indeed, despite the guidelines for novices, no one had tried to insist that he require accompaniment to his flight to heaven. As Yara had said, it was only a custom rather than a rule, and her presence certainly hadn't protected him last time. On the castle's upper tier, three tall masts supported a set of elegant sails. These contributed only minimally to the building's movement, but they created an aesthetic effect, making the castle resemble a pirate ship cruising through the clouds. At the top of the mainmast, the Picaroon's green flag billowed out. Higher still, Delroy saw a more prosaic sight, the vast balloons that collectively supported the edifice's weight. Scientists competed to supply the exotic rays, gases, and force fields that kept everything aloft. In contrast to the castle's profusion of elaborate display, the balloons were stark white spheres, as though the castle liked to pretend that it was buoyed solely by the collective elan of its inhabitants, and the balloons had nothing to do with it. Of course the balloons were vital, but the castle wasn't as heavy as it looked. Most of the elaborate structure of light but sturdy aerogel polymers it was like a giant flying Lego set, albeit one where each individual brick was someone's personal boast about a particular accomplishment. Delroy wondered where his own brick had gone. Had it already been incorporated into one of the wyvern's roosts? The thieves would probably disfigure the original design, adding an overstamp to commemorate their victorious raid. Perhaps they might carve a sad face, caricaturing him, inside the yellow disc of his gold medal or they might inscribe some falling droplets, alluding to their tawdry mischief. There were so many ways they could deface his slab. Thinking of them made Delroy angry all over again. He promised himself that one day he would salvage the stone, add another emblem to it, celebrating the recapture. The older stones in the castle were full of such overlaid details. A palimpsest of conquest that told the story of the sky's eternal struggle for glory. As Delroy ascended, and the balloons disappeared from sight below him, he found himself alone in a boundless expanse of nothingness. The distant ground was veiled by a thin haze. On all sides, occasional clouds receded to a remote horizon that already displayed its curvature. The only colors in sight were blue and gray. The air was silent. No birds sang here. Few scents rose to this height. Delroy smelled only a faint tang of sulfur from some remote volcanic plume. The isolation far surpassed any seclusion on the crowded earth below. The sense of smallness in such a prodigious realm, stretching in all directions around him, made Delroy feel humble. He was a tiny, brief speck in a vast, ancient world. Humility was an unaccustomed emotion for Delroy, who had always been encouraged by his coaches to view himself as a winner, the best of all athletes lining up for the next race. The rare occasions he'd felt humble had been in church when the service evoked a sense of transcendence in the presence of God, and he experienced something similar now. The whole world is God's church, he realized. 
The solitude of the upper air affected many people in this way, not just Delroy. Consequently, it had become the home of numerous hermits and aesthetics, who established themselves in the lofty vaults of the sky in order to flee the sinful earth and reach closer to God. There was, indeed, considerable competition between the hermits as to which of them could live higher than the others. Just as the ancient stylites had lived on high columns in remote deserts, so today's modern ascetics strove to exile themselves even further from the pollution of civilization. The upper atmosphere had been nicknamed Heaven, as it was occupied by so many holy men. This habitat was Delroy's destination. There remained a long way to go, because Idrisu Rodriguez, known to the wider world as Augustine, had the reputation of being the highest and holiest hermit in the sky. Delroy flew on. The solitude slowly became oppressive. It wasn't just that there were no humans nearby. There was nothing anywhere near him. The emptiness was appalling. It was hard to gain any sense of progress. Delroy began to feel he wasn't actually moving. He was simply floating in the middle of an enormous, endless void which he could never escape. Fortunately, he had the reassurance of technology. His locator augment, installed in his skull, told him his position and altitude. The steadily climbing numbers showed that he rose ever higher as his wings powered him onward. His augments also gave him access to the world's surging data streams. To pass the time, Delroy sampled a few of the sports and gossip channels and saw that the flyers were gaining plenty of coverage. For decades, the various enhanced clades had struggled to draw a mass audience, as the public preferred to watch standard sports when the competitors were equally matched. The problem had been addressed by shifting the emphasis away from specific events such as races and matches to a more freeform narrative. Conflict was open-ended and unpredictable. An all-encompassing battle for prestige, guarded by arbiters passing judgment from on high. Eventually, Delroy's locator pinged to indicate that someone hovered far above him. It was the hermit Augustine. How does he climb so high? wondered Delroy. The air had attenuated to such meagerness that Delroy could almost count the molecules in every gasping breath. His aching wings struggled to accrue each centimeter of height. Having been enhanced very recently, he'd received the latest in wing designs, optimized for maximum lift. But the hermit, who reputedly stayed aloft for decades, couldn't possibly have the same advantage. As his wings scrabbled for ever-diminishing uplift, Delroy realized he simply couldn't attain the hermit's elevation, not even if he discarded the weight of the prayers he carried. He couldn't ascend to heaven. However, the hermit could descend to meet Delroy. The locator announced someone approaching from above. Delroy looked up and saw a speck, a surprisingly large speck, coming nearer. Very soon, after a gracefully controlled plummet, the hermit floated next to Delroy, as both of them soared in the endless storm of the jet stream. Delroy had to work hard to keep his face composed and refrain from blurting any exclamation, because Augustine was a truly astonishing sight. His body was far larger than Delroy's, because much of it was a balloon. Delroy guessed that the hermit's digestive system contained symbiotic microbes producing hydrogen gas. The balloon, like most of Augustine's body, was the vibrant green of leaf buds in spring. Photosynthesis reduced the need for conventional food and enabled lengthy periods of fasting, another aspect of the hermit's competition for ever fiercer asceticism. Aside from the balloon, Augustine also possessed a fine pair of wings, together with the conventional attuberances of head, torso, arms, and legs, all unclothed so as to maximize the area of photosynthesizing skin. 
His legs were atrophied from long disuse. The wings, which presumably gave greater maneuverability than the balloon itself could provide, had feathers of glossy vermilion contrasting sharply to the green skin elsewhere. Delroy's own feathers were of a similar hue. The whole picaroon clade tended to adopt this traditional coloring. The most disturbing element of the hermit's appearance was neither his size nor his color, but the fact that his body was covered in strange growths and blotches. They looked unhealthy and out of place, even in the context of Augustine's radical enhancements. Was this a strange mortification of the flesh practiced by advanced ascetics? Don't worry, I'm not infectious, said the hermit. It's cancer, mostly. Decades of sunshine and cosmic rays. The higher you fly, the less atmospheric shielding there is. I've got a hundred different tumors all competing to eat me up. He sounded tired and old, his voice weakened further by the thinness of the air. I'm sorry to hear it, Delroy said. I hope you're well enough to receive a visitor. Your daughter would have come, but she's been injured. Nothing serious. She just needs to rest her wings. Delroy glanced at Augustine again and couldn't discern any familiar resemblance to Yara. The hermit was just too alien-looking, as though he'd pushed his body far beyond the bounds of humanity. It was disconcerting, and gave Delroy a visceral insight as to how the natural lifers could denounce enhancement as a monstrous iniquity. Then I'm grateful to you for coming in her place, Augustine replied. Have you brought... Delroy passed the small canvas bag, grateful to be shed of its burden. The hermit opened the bag, took out a water bottle, and slurped down the liquid in one long, gurgling gulp. It contained nutrients and supplements that couldn't be generated by photosynthesis. Augustine turned his attention to the bag's other contents, the sheaf of prayers. He scanned the first one, his lips twitched in a small, sad smile. Then he put the paper into his mouth, chomped hard and noisily, and swallowed it. Delroy looked on, astounded, as Augustine similarly proceeded to consume every single prayer in the batch. The hermit's actions were mechanical, proceeding without pause, indeed with uncommon efficiency. Delroy was shocked at the speed with which the prayers were dispatched. People on the ground paid good money to have their prayers conveyed aloft, so that the world's holiest hermit could relay them to God. Delroy had imagined a slow, thorough, intense reading and recitation, not this assembly line processing. It also hadn't occurred to him that the hermit would eat the prayers. Presumably the paper was digested by hydrogen-generating microbes. Delroy had to stifle a snigger as he realized that, effectively, the hermit floated under a balloon full of his own farts. There are also some personal messages, Delroy said when Augustine finished dispatching the papers. I'm sure there are. What did my daughter ask you to say? The hermit's tone was polite, yet impassive. He sounded as remote and immovable as the stars. Delroy felt that Augustine already knew the forthcoming question and its destined response. Nevertheless, he'd promised Yara, so he had to ask. She wishes you would come down. She prays for it, Augustine sighed. Of course she does. She always does. Delroy had only promised to ask. His duty done, he didn't need to take sides in a family dispute. But something about Augustine made him angry. Perhaps it was the mindless way he'd chomped down all the prayers, or perhaps it was the impression he gave that listening to Yara's plea was merely a tiresome obligation with a predestined outcome. "'You have a grandson you've never seen!' he exclaimed. "'I know,' Augustine said. 
but I am a hermit after all. If I came down to ruffle the boy's hair and give him presents like any other grandparent, then I wouldn't be a hermit, would I? No, but you'd be more of a human being, Delroy thought. He wondered why becoming a hermit automatically gave someone an aura of holiness, such that people admired them, sought their advice, asked them to say prayers. What if a hermit was simply a grumpy curmudgeon who happened to live in the sky? Besides, Augustine continued, the world is full of children. I pray for them all equally, including my grandson. I can assure you he's not neglected. But staying up here is what gives me my standing. If I have any moral authority at all, it's because I'm remote from worldly affairs. I speak from no consideration of personal advantage or factual interest. So your standing is more important than your family, Delroy inquired. Yes, Augustine admitted with disarming honesty. It's the price I pay for my position. We all pay a price for prestige. At least I know what mine is. Are you sure about yours? Never mind that, said Delroy, refusing to be deferred. Isn't your price paid in full? Haven't you been a hermit long enough and exerted all the authority you ever wanted? You've been up here for decades. What more can you possibly achieve? No one would blame you for coming down, especially as ill as you are. You could get your cancer fixed up. Perhaps I could, Augustine said. Although I wouldn't be much of an ascetic if I ran away from a bit of cancer. But you seem to think of hermitry as a temporary hobby. It's not like that. Not for me, anyway. His tone implied that he'd seen a whole host of part-time hermits arrive and depart. If I came down now, it would raise the question of why I didn't come down before, and why I even bothered to come up here in the first place. Well, why did you? asked Elroy. Well, the short answer is that I wanted to be closer to God. Do you really want the long answer? Yara knows all this already. Delroy nodded, realizing that he should stop asking impertinent questions and start getting on Augustine's good side, since he still needed to request a judgment on the wyverns. As a child, I was one of the few kids in school who enjoyed going to church. I liked the hymns, the candles, the sense of something important and mysterious. Augustine smiled nostalgically. But when I studied theology in college, I found it more disconcerting than I'd expected. There were so many conceptions of God and his ways, it was overwhelming. God was bigger and more complicated than I'd ever imagined. I had difficulty coping, and someone suggested getting my brain boosted so I could pass the exams. They recommended an intelligence augment, which is the most common tweak, but I suppose you know there's lots of things they can do with people's minds. Delroy did know. As an athlete, he'd employed a coach with enhanced empathy, who'd been able to read Delroy's mood with uncanny precision so as to get the best out of him. Instead of boosting my intelligence, I thought it would be better to deal with my theology problem more directly. There's an area of the brain responsible for spiritual experiences. Anything transcendent or numinous or whatever you want to call it. I asked for that part of my mind to be cranked up. Augustine coughed, shivered, and bowed his head before continuing. 
Maybe they did too good a job. I remember them talking about the calibration problem. Intelligence augments can be easily measured. It's harder with spirituality. There isn't a standard test. They can't bring an angel down to the lab and measure how people respond. Anyway, the result was I saw the handiwork of God everywhere, which at the time seemed perfectly natural. Isn't the whole world and everything in it God's handiwork? I said they'd opened my eyes, and I thanked them. I wouldn't let them dial it down, even though they thought they'd overdone it. Yet after a while, it became too intense. I found it hard enough to look at an inanimate object. Every pebble felt like a tiny miracle. But it was much harder to look at people. I kept thinking I could see their souls. If even a pebble is a miracle... Then what's free will? So you became a hermit because you couldn't stand to look at people? Asked Delroy. The question slipped out before he remembered he was supposed to be humoring Augustine. Tact wasn't Delroy's strong point. He'd never needed it on the track. Basically, yes. And I know, because I can see your soul, that you're wondering why I haven't gotten my brain fixed, just as I haven't gotten my cancer fixed. Certainly, I could reverse the enhancement and go back to being spiritually blind, but it would be disrespectful to God if I deliberately blinded myself to the sight of His glory, and it would be disrespectful to my fellow men if I refused to answer them when they asked me what I see. Augustine left a meaningful pause which even Delroy knew how to fill. What do you see? asked Delroy. Struggle, Augustine replied. When I look at the world God has made, I see a world of perpetual struggle. Nature red in tooth and claw, as they say. The mouse and the owl, the wasp, that lays eggs inside its paralyzed prey so the larvae can eat their hosts alive from the inside. Mankind's history is full of rivalry and conquest. Conflict is universal, because without losers, there are no winners. If we judge God by his handiwork, then we must say that God is a connoisseur of strife. It is written that the lion shall lie down with the lamb, but not yet. Until then, God encourages us all to strive. Nowadays, our conflict is more humane. We compete with our accomplishments, but we still follow God's plan. Augustine spoke in a weary fashion, as if he'd said these words a thousand times and barely had the energy to utter them again. Nevertheless, his tone was full of conviction, even at barely more than a whisper. Indeed, the tiredness that imbued his voice gave all the more intensity to the sentences that he chose to speak. You bravely strike against the dull conviction that God is love, God is light, and so forth, said Delroy, smiling. Augustine's doctrine sounded eccentric when so baldly expressed, even if it chimed with spiritual descriptions of God smiting the foes of the Israelites. Delroy thought Augustine was cracked in the head. He'd tinkered with his own brain. He'd isolated himself from the human race. 
He'd spent years being fried by radiation, and now he was on the verge of death. Middle-of-the-road platitudes were not to be expected. The highest hermit was naturally the most extreme. An ordinary hermit might espouse an ordinary philosophy, but people who requested prayers and guidance didn't seek them from an average hermit. They wanted the highest and the most holy. I can see you find my perspective unsatisfying, said Augustine. That's fine. Feel free to test it against all the others. He flung out his arm feebly, in a gesture that attempted to encompass the whole sky. And you'll see its merit. It will vanquish any rival philosophy. Delroy found this assertion questionable, and in other circumstances he would have disputed it. But Augustine appeared to have limited energy to continue the conversation, and Delroy still had one more subject to raise. We seek your wisdom, he said. This was the rote freeze with which the Picaroons requested an ex-cathedra pronouncement. The hermit acted as the clade's spiritual advisor on all kinds of ethical issues, such as the age at which children could be enhanced, or what happened when parents disagreed about experimental upgrades. Ask, and I shall answer, Augustine replied. Delroy explained how he'd been attacked while wearing a novice's colors. Indignation filled him as he spoke of it, yet he tried to sound dispassionate, reporting the events as though they'd happened to someone else. He concluded with the key question, Is it permissible to attack a novice on their graduation flight? Augustine fell silent for a moment, and Delroy was conscious of the whole world, or at least the aerial portion of it, awaiting the answer. Delroy's archivist augment, a tiny camera and microphone, recorded the conversation for onward dissemination. Augustine's balloon seemed to swell, this was the hermit's prestige, to be the arbiter of such decisions, to hand down judgment from on high. It's certainly permissible, said Augustine. Whether it's admirable is quite another matter. Delroy was amazed. He hadn't expected the hermit to condone the raider's behaviors. Permissible? he demanded. Of course, said Augustine. Weren't you listening when I talked about a world of perpetual conflict? We're more civilized than nature. We only compete against fellow players, but as soon as a player enters the contest, they become fair game. And you joined in. You are carrying a stone, designed to proclaim your prestige. You can't complain of its theft because no one forced you to carry it. The original graduation flights were simply a matter of reaching the castle from the ground. It was only on subsequent apprentices who started carrying stones. They took a chance on acquiring prestige through a new refinement. And so it goes with the wyverns doing likewise. Your own behavior proves the case. You know very well that novices aren't supposed to fly unaccompanied, yet if you still thought of yourself as a novice... You wouldn't have come here alone to visit me. You can't complain about not being treated as a novice if you're not going to behave like one. Actually, it's the other way around, said Delroy. I figured if people were attacking me, then I might as well take that as a sign of graduation. There's no point in me considering myself a novice if no one else does. Yet you still wear white, Augustine pointed out, his voice faint and hoarse. You can't have it both ways. I think you're no longer a novice because you've been 
tested in combat, the true crucible of existence. You should be grateful. You've been given a marvelous opportunity. Anger, vengeance, recovery of your stolen treasure. What are you waiting for? Delroy knew this was the crux. The Flyers had to find an audience if they wanted their squabbles for prestige to acquire a sense of epic significance. To entice the world to watch, there had to be something worth watching. A cast of characters, a set of storylines. In Delroy's narrative, would dastardly deeds be followed by righteous revenge? The hermit began coughing. No mere throat clearing, but a series of great hacking heaves that made his grotesque balloon shudder, billows rippling across its green surface. Is there anything I can do? asked Delroy. For yourself, yes. For me, no. The hermit's words were a fading whisper. Delroy understood them more by lip-reading than by listening. You can tell Yara that I will be coming down after all. Well, some of me will be. Relics ahoy! He coughed again. It sounded like he was tearing himself apart. Yeah, you wondered why I scanned through those prayers so quickly. I only had to remember them rather than recite them. Soon, I'll deliver them in person. Yet another paroxysm reverberated through Augustine's body. It shook something loose. The hermit's withered feet, mere desiccated scraps of flesh unused for decades, dropped away from his torso and began a leisurely fall into the void below. The loss of ballast sent Augustine slowly drifting higher. His voice having expired, he subvocalized over the comm channel. For me, the struggle is over. For you, for everyone on the earth and above it, the quest for glory continues. God bless all your endeavors. Delroy stared in shock as Augustine's body practically dissolved in midair. Only the hermit's head remained, affixed to the green balloon that had shed all other excrescences. Freed of his mundane impediments, Augustine floated up toward heaven. Those same impediments plummeted earthward. Delroy snapped out of his frozen astonishment and dived. Soon he plucked one of the hermit's arms out of the air, grasping it by the fingers in a bizarre parody of a handshake. Then he snagged both of Augustine's wings, which were gradually shedding feathers as they fell. He couldn't let the hermit's remains plunge to the ground like so much discarded rubbish. They would be incinerated by the laser grid that protected the groundlings from falling debris. Delroy gathered as much as he could and stuffed everything into the bag that contained the prayers. Detached from their torso, green in color, covered in cancerous growths, the body parts looked more alien than human. Most of them were flimsy as paper, desiccated flesh, lightweight hollow bones. They fluttered on the wind, tinctured with a few blood-red feathers. The job was nearly complete with only final fragments left to collect. The feet, having fallen first, had fallen furthest, and Delroy had been delayed by the necessity of picking up everything else. He squinted down, trying to make out where the rogue feet had drifted. He saw something, but it was bigger than a foot. His locator pinged, indicating another flyer. Delroy opened a comm channel, but before he could request help in collecting the feet, he noticed that the stranger seemed to already be scooping something out of the air and then he spotted another flyer converging upon the first one. 
They came together in an explosion of swift, jerky motions. They were fighting. What was that about? Relics ahoy! Delroy remembered Augustine's words. The hermit's physical remains might be considered as relics. Unlike anything precious, they were trophies that could be seized. Tokens in the flyer's eternal competition for prestige. But Augustine had only just died. How had these flyers known to swoop upon his descending remains? They were probably those who'd been nearest when they heard the hermit's final words through the calm. Indeed, Delroy could now see other flyers approaching. The pings of his locator merged into a steady warning buzz as a crowd gathered, all lured by the prospect of trophies and glory. Lucky for them, the hermit had conveniently publicized his imminent death. No, not lucky at all. Augustine had made sure that broadcast deliberately, in order to reach as many flyers as possible. Because he preached struggle, a narrative of conflict, he needed to bring enough characters on stage to enact the battle. The hermit had a special kind of arrogance, not only to imply his own remains were holy relics, but also to incite his followers to fight over them. Now they were coming after Delroy, who held a bag full of sacred treasure. Reflexively, he climbed higher, fleeing his pursuers. He had an instinctive revulsion for the scene that was about to unfold. Not wanting to fight off a crowd of fame-hungry vultures, he resented Augustine for putting him in this position. But no one was forcing Delroy to defend his cargo. He could open the bag and discard all the relics, letting them fall for others to squabble over. That would be like running away. His competitive instincts rebelled against the notion of withdrawing from the game, even though it was an uglier contest than he'd anticipated. He wanted to win. Besides, he had a duty to Yara, his mentor and sponsor. She was Augustine's daughter. She should receive the hermit's remains. Delroy had to return to the Picaroon's castle and deliver the relics to Yara. It would be no easy task. Below him, the flyers began to spread out, blocking Delroy from the castle. Delroy's locator showed a rapidly forming grid, each flyer at a node waiting for him to attempt to pass. If Delroy flew down towards the cordon, it would become clear where he intended to try breaking through, and the mesh would tighten as the vultures reinforced the grid to prevent his passage. Delroy scanned the blockade, looking for a weak spot. He didn't see one. Indeed, the grid seemed to thicken as he watched. The locator warned him that the vultures were coming closer. It was an obvious tactic. If they gradually moved higher, they would either converge upon Delroy and attack him, or they would force him to retreat upward to maintain his distance. And he couldn't retreat indefinitely, because he would eventually reach the altitude limit. Either way, they would soon swarm upon him. He had to act. He made swift preparations, while he was still too distant for the enemy to see his actions clearly. The process hurt considerably, but that couldn't be helped. If he succeeded, the sacrifice would burnish the story of his triumph. It was a stratagem far removed from Delroy's old life as an athlete when the challenge was rigidly restrictive, to run a hundred meters. Up here, the lack of boundaries forced competitors to be more creative. His preparations complete, Delroy climbed a little further to maximize the distance between himself and the blockade. Then he tucked his still-smarting wings and dived. It was exhilarating to plummet through the air, falling as fast as he possibly could. His goal was simple, attain enough velocity to punch through the cordon too fast to be stopped or pursued. As he approached, Delroy could see the vultures gathering at the bullseye of his predicted trajectory. Some of them broke away from the grid, 
a few flying upward in an effort to get the first crack at Delroy, and others flying downward, building speed to follow him in case he pierced the blockade. Delroy jinked sideways, diverting his trajectory just enough to dodge the cluster of flyers who'd flown up to meet him. He was falling so fast that he only got glimpses of greedy faces and glinting claws. The main blockade was altogether denser, harder to break through. As the confrontation drew near, he reached into the bag containing the hermit's remains. He threw a handful of red feathers, scattering them across the sky. It caused just enough confusion to let Delroy slip through. Many of the vultures saw an easy win in grabbing one of the feathers, rather than attempting the harder task of attacking Delroy as he plunged towards them. If the blockade had effectively concentrated on stopping Delroy, they could have done so and left the feathers for later. But they were all individualists at heart, all aiming to maximize their own prestige. Enough of them snatched at the distraction, enabling Delroy to swoop through the gap they'd left. As the vultures would later discover, the feathers weren't Augustine's at all. Delroy had plucked them from his own wings, creating false relics as a decoy. The hardest part was to evade those flyers who'd been intelligent enough to fly downward. They could more closely match his speed, making them more difficult to shake off. Delroy frantically dodged and weaved, but he couldn't avoid them all. Sharp talons raked across his skin, sending a shock of pain through him. Delroy was hampered in defending himself due to the paramount necessity of holding on to the true relics. But now he was within reach of the castle, and the Picaroons sallied forth to help Delroy fend off the vultures. The attackers fell away, knowing they'd missed their chance. The Picaroon squadron leader flew awkwardly, her wing beats not quite in sync. "'Yara!' exclaimed Delroy. "'You shouldn't have come out.' "'How could I not?' We all have our part to play, and if my father is coming down at last, I should be here to meet him. What's left of him? I'm sorry I couldn't collect all his remains, Delroy said. I didn't get the feet. One of those vultures must have them, I suppose. They sat in Yara's tiny apartment deep inside the castle. All the partitions had holographic panoramas to create an illusion of greater space. In contrast to the profligate perimeter wall and lavish adjoining rooms, the cramped warrens within the castle were narrow and congested to give scope to all the showy finery in the outer shell. You did your best, Yara said. Besides, his feet were the least of his organs, the ones he never used. Living in the air, he rejected the earth and repudiated his feet. They weren't really part of him. He only kept them to remind himself of what he'd renounced. Delroy felt he was listening to an improvised exegesis, which would coalesce into an official dogma. Devotees were already building outward from Yara's small portion of the exterior wall, constructing a shrine to house the relics of her father. If anyone takes pride in owning those feet, then that just proves their base nature, Delroy said like a jazz musician extemporizing his own contribution to the philosophical riff. Feet represent a realm far below heaven. Indeed, said Yara. I'd like to get them back eventually, when we find out who grabbed them. But that can wait. There are other targets in the meantime. You could try to recover your feathers, the ones you threw as a decoy, and the wyverns still have the stone they took. Do you have plans yet? Delroy smiled. The question, phrased as an inquiry between equals, acknowledged his new status as a full-fledged picaroon. In recognition of his achievement in saving Augustine's relics and bringing them to the castle, Yara had bestowed the green upon him. He wore it now, the silk pleasantly cool against his skin. His apprenticeship complete, Yara was no longer his mentor. 
Now she was a comrade or a rival. He replied, I'm not going after the stone just yet. I want the thieves to wait a while, tense and fearful, wondering when I'll come for them. Right now, I want to do something more unexpected. Yara nodded. Good idea. Maybe you could become a hermit. It sounded like a joke, but he was surprised that she would actually make a joke about hermits so soon after the death of her father. Perhaps the suggestion was genuine? The Picaroons did need a new guru. I thought you disapproved of hermits, he said. After all, you wanted your father to come back down. She'd said that, but maybe she hadn't meant it. Delroy found himself wondering how much Yara had genuinely resented Augustine's self-imposed exile, and how much she'd played up to his persona. Becoming a hermit was more meaningful, more an obvious sacrifice, if you had real family ties to abandon. A protesting daughter was mightily convenient for that image. Delroy would formerly have dismissed the thought as too cynical, but now he knew the relentless struggle for renown took on many guises, from outright thievery to subtle dissimulation. He was busy crafting his own plans, and he relished the ranges of strategies available. Right now, he wanted to see whether Yara would confirm or deny Augustine's philosophy. I thought you disapproved of your father deserting his family, Delroy continued. Yet now you're building a shrine. He advocated the pursuit of glory, but that's what made him abandon you. He wanted to be the highest, the most holy, the most ascetic and pure, so obviously he could never come back to play with his grandchildren. How can you still embrace those values when they're what caused him to leave you? Yara shook her head. That doesn't follow. All the Pickerons strive for glory, and most of us don't abandon our families. If my father achieved fame selfishly, then I'll try to do better. I'll succeed in my own way, and I won't be so selfish. I'll make sure I take my son with me. Although her son was at school, Yara's arm crooked in a possessive gesture, as if hugging him close, even in his absence. I'll make sure he gets his wings, she said. I'll always be there for him. She was obviously overcompensating. Delroy felt sorry for the boy. Which was worse, being abandoned or smothered? He wanted to tell Yara to back off and let the boy find his own path, but it wasn't his place to question her decisions as a parent. She wouldn't listen to him anyway, since he had no status for opinionating. Only the hermits had that kind of moral authority. For a moment, Delroy was tempted to become a guru. He would do a better job than Augustine. He would deliver common-sense verdicts rather than extreme doctrines. He would protect children, protect novices, protect the principles of sportsmanship. There was a clear need for sensible guidance on many topics. Suddenly filled with a desire to pronounce from on high, Delroy understood Augustine's arrogance. Yet he'd only recently got his wings, and he'd just joined the Picaroons today. He hadn't lived the Clades' lifestyle long enough to renounce it. Being a hermit was a drastic step. Far better to indulge the pursuit of glory before pontificating upon it. He already had plans that he was about to put in action. So you still believe in chasing prestige, he asked. You still believe in all that stuff Augustine talked about. The eternal conflict. Well, of course, she said, sounding puzzled at his question. And what about the way he endorsed the wyvern's attack on me? He said it was acceptable to behave like that. Do you agree? Delroy endeavored to show only his natural indignation and betray nothing beyond that. He rarely attempted such a subterfuge. His former coach, Mikito, would have instantly discerned his ulterior motive, 
but Yara didn't have that degree of enhanced empathy. She had no reason not to take his question at face value. Yes, Yara said firmly. He was our arbiter. You chose to request a ruling. If we ask a difficult question, then we should accept a difficult answer. He made his judgment and supported it with a strong argument. I realize you're upset. He wasn't. Not at all. He was elated. The thrill of being duplicitous was a euphoric rush that made him feel he could soar into the air without using his wings. After a lifetime of black and white rules, Delroy was reveling in a vast new realm filled with delicate shades of gray. I'll get over it somehow, he said. As you say, we all need to find our glory in our own way. Upon leaving the castle, Delroy swung around to look at the shrine, which had rapidly bulged out into the void. Many people had contributed stones to help build a suitably grandiose home for Augustine's remains. The shrine's hodgepodge of myriad clashing emblems made it a microcosm of the edifice in which it resided. The castle had budded off a miniature version of itself, a fractal horal, just as flamboyant as its parent. At the heart of the shrine stood an elaborate silver vessel for housing the hermit's relics. It resembled an old-fashioned sporting trophy. Already crowds were gathering, both inside and outside. The dedication ceremony would soon begin. The shrine's interior had room for only a limited number of celebrities, and consequently their attendance signified their status. Outside, flyers of all clades drifted past, peering at the castle's newest gaudy excretions. Some of those flyers were surely contemplating an attack on the shrine to steal away its contents. Anyone who succeeded in seizing the sacred relics would thereby boost their own fame. Since Augustine had preached the virtue of competition, his moral remains were the perfect trophy to symbolize victory in the quest for glory. And Delroy had already stolen them. It had been easy. Because he'd originally salvaged the relics, no one had suspected him of any sinister intent when he requested a moment to pay his respects in private. He'd paid his respects to Augustine in the best possible way, by applying the hermit's own teachings— the silver cup was an emblem of competition. As soon as Augustine's remains had been placed inside, they became fair game. The shrine could be desecrated before being dedicated, just as Delroy had been attacked before completing his graduation flight. The hermit had preached conflict, opportunism, new refinements on old customs. Yara, having endorsed his philosophy, couldn't complain. Besides, Delroy's subsequent renown would reflect upon her as his former mentor. And this was only the first of many deeds to come, the first stone for a grand new castle that one day would eclipse everything else in the sky. The crowd at the shrine were like competitors lining up before a race. But here, unlike in standard athletics, there was no starting gun. The race for prestige was eternal, with no beginning and no end. And Delroy was already running leaving his rivals behind while everyone admired a trophy that was empty. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian's. Ian, big thank you, sir. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. And Logan, what can I say? Thank you, Squire. That is today's show, 317 put to bed. My biggest plea is go and support the Bradshaws. You know what I mean? There's a link on the front of the website. Get yourself that CD, do you know what I mean? And just 
you know, like you say, the part of the family, they've been there from the backbone, from, you know, oodles. Like you say, when, when Robin was talking there, she's been there from nearly day one. Do you know what I mean? Her son's nearly nine-year-old there now, so come on. And the, honestly, behind the scenes, Robin has just done so much to help Starship. You wouldn't believe how much Robin's done, do you know what I mean? How much I've taxed her and got her to do stuff. And, like you say, David's just a talent, which is like so much power in him, you know what I mean? To just kind of write them songs and just to come up with songs. If we can get a new one for Starship Sova, a new one for Larry Show, Tales to Terrify, and a District of Wonders one, do you know what I mean? Even them stretch goals are tiny, you know, of a Kickstarter kind of ideas and, you know, the way it goes. So please support the Bradshaws, that will be fantastic. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Calling Town City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. On your radio, I want to talk to you. I want to talk. 